If you do have a Bible, uh, if you turn to our passage today, we're in Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. And when you found that, if you would stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Matthew writes this. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, presumably this is later on talking with him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask that you would illumine the preaching of your word now. Open up hearts and ears and minds to receive this word deeply planted and that it would bear much fruit because of it. You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well. Whether you are a player of the game yourself or you know almost nothing about the game of hockey, I think everyone here, I'm assuming that you know that it's at least important, like really important, to keep the goalie in the net throughout the game. Is that, is that a fair assumption we can make that everyone knows this? I, I know I've used this illustration at least once in the past, preaching a parallel passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, but... It, just considering it fits so well with what we're looking at today and pretty sure that nobody's reviewing my messages from two years ago, I figured it was safe to bring it up again. Um, we get this, right? I mean, most of us, a, a lot of us here, Canadian, probably have some experience with the kind of hockey thing. We know, like keeping the goalie in the net to stop the pucks from going in, pretty important for playing, certainly winning the game of hockey. And although, yes, Sure, there, there, there are rules of the game. Permit a coach. He can pull the goalie at any time in the game he wants in order to add an extra attacker onto the ice. I don't know any coach that's going to make use of that provision except in the most dire of circumstances, at the very last minutes of the game when now the game is otherwise all but lost. Point being, although there is a provision in, it, in the rules for it, playing the game of hockey without a goalie was never the original intent of how hockey was to be played and enjoyed. 
And I bring it up as we continue in this teaching series through Matthew's Gospel entitled Kingdom Come this morning because as you saw from the passage we just read, Jesus is presented with a series of questions about marriage that all seem to center around this certificate of divorce that you see there in verse 7. But what perhaps you don't know yet, and we're going to unpack this, and, and clearly the people of Jesus' day had lost sight of as well, is that this certificate of divorce, which was really a provision only given by Moses in the event that a divorce occurred, was being treated as though it was the command of God, giving husbands just the right to divorce their wives for any and every reason. Essentially, pulling the goalie five minutes into the game as though the NHL rulebook required it. And I know lots of times when we come to stuff in the Bible, I mean, it, it seems so hopelessly outdated, just antiquated stuff that doesn't have anything to do with our modern-day lives, and we're kind of just like, well, what, so, so what? And yet, I doubt it would surprise anyone to hear me say that attitudes today regarding the permanence of marriage haven't exactly aged well over the last 2,000 years, yeah? Uh, uh, in fact, more than being easily as loose as they were in Jesus' day, I'd say that attitudes regarding marriage even being important uh, at all in our day and age, people seeing it even as being something that's worth considering, mean that we're just as far from God's original intent for marriage as people were in Jesus' day, and therefore just as much in need of Jesus kind of resetting, reestablishing, cultural norm-defying words ourselves as they were. And in fact, what makes Jesus' words here even more culturally defying of norms uh, then and today is the way that not only does Jesus challenge like cultural norms as they relate to marriage, he also challenges cultural norms as they relate to singleness. He's challenging, everybody gets included in this one today. And in order to help you really get a hold and, and see what it is that Jesus is presenting here and, and hopefully see where maybe your own views of marriage and singleness need to be reset as well, I want to look at our passage together today in just two ways. We're going to talk about God's original intent for marriage and God's equally good intent for singleness. It's those two things, God's original intent for marriage, God's equally good intent for singleness. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever you got there, would you open it again with me to our passage, Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. I'd love you to follow along with me as we look at Jesus' original intent for his created order and the goodness behind that intent. Okay, let's look first of all at God's original intent for marriage. So if you look at verse 1 and 2 of our passage here, this is where Matthew is kind of setting the context for this whole conversation that goes on between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples as well. He has, uh, Jesus, he's essentially concluded his Galilean ministry and is now headed towards Jerusalem, where he will fulfill the purpose for which he came, which was to give his life for the sins of the world. But although he's completed this aspect of his ministry and he's headed on this journey now to this difficult purpose facing him with the cross, ministry still continues all along the way, right? As large crowds continue to come to Jesus and, and he's healing them wherever he comes across them. Which understanding that context now I think makes the question the Pharisees bring to Jesus now in verse 3 seem even more out of place when they ask. Because you can just imagine this scene. Jesus is in this crowd. People are 
being healed, there's rejoicing, there's celebrating, only to have these religious bigwigs kind of push their way in through the crowd in order to interrupt Jesus' ministry with what they see as their oh-so-important question. You know, just kind of like Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, oh, so you're, you're healing someone who has been blind since birth. Oh, wait, guys heal. Oh, okay, that's great, excellent. So yeah, about our question. You know, it's just like, what are they doing? I mean, I'm honestly, I, when I'm reading this, I already get triggered by this. Like if I'm Jesus here and these guys are coming in with this question right now, I'm just like, guys, <laughs> please feel free to go ahead and take off right now. Just get out of here. Seriously, great question. Let's chat about it some other time. Something else going on right now. Like just clueless, it seems like, right? Because here they are in the midst of a crowd of truly needy people, cheering, crying, praising God for all this ministry and healing that they're witnessing, only to have these religious rulers filled with self-importance interrupt the truly important thing for what they see as their more important thing. Like they can't even see the God-honoring celebration going on all around them, so like single-minded are they in their purpose. And yet, as I sat in this more, I came to see that the Pharisees' purpose in coming to Jesus while he's in the midst of ministering to this crowd was actually very much intentional. Why? Well, because the question the Pharisees asked Jesus there in verse 3 was about a subject that there was varied as well as, well as very strongly held beliefs. Okay? Which means, yes, they're asking a question. They're trying to test Jesus, hoping he'll say something, misstep somewhere so they can condemn him. Absolutely. But in asking Jesus this question in front of such a large audience, what the Pharisees knew was, at the end of the day, it didn't even actually matter how he responded. Because however Jesus responded, the Pharisees knew he was going to alienate and offend someone, right? At least some portion of this obnoxious crowd falling all over Jesus was going to walk based on how he answered. So it's like, you know, big crowd, everyone's focused on Jesus, and then they just kind of calling out, Jesus, yeah, give us your views on abortion, would you? Tell us your views on medical assistance and dying or gay marriage. Just tell us, what, what are your thoughts about that? And then all of a sudden, all the eyes are on him. They, they just know it's an intentionally seditious act to ask him this question in this context because they know somebody's going to be annoyed by what you say and why. It's all just about Jesus' rapidly growing fame, and you've got you to cut down this crowd. But I want us to go just a little bit more deeply into the Pharisees' question just before we look at Jesus' response because I want you to understand the cultural weight attached to it. Divorce... Uh, was widespread as well as widely accepted in Jesus' day, just as it is today. Although, unlike today, in this time period, only a husband could divorce his wife, not the other way around. So as you can see from the way that they phrase their question there in verse 3, look again. The question isn't whether divorce is allowed, only under what conditions it would be allowed. At this point in history, uh, there, there's basically two camps that have kind of formed around the question. There are two opinions about what the answer to the question is. There's the followers of Rabbi Shammai, who said divorce was only permitted on the grounds of gross indecency, essentially of a sexual nature, up to and including adultery. And then you had the school of Rabbi Hillel, who extended the grounds much further to include everything from barrenness to burning your husband's dinner. Not even kidding. But if you look now at Jesus' response to their question beginning at verse 4, Jesus says in reply, quoting Genesis 1.27 as well as Genesis 2.24, he says, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Essentially starting out saying to these renowned Bible teachers, Haven't you read your Bibles? Essentially doing this, and then before going on to conclude, look now at verse 6. So, as a result of that, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Which means in response, what Jesus is ultimately doing, he's sidestepping their question entirely. Not because he can't answer it, but because they're starting from the wrong place. They're asking the wrong question to begin with. How? But because they have the wrong starting point. They've begun at the wrong place. Think about, just as an example, think of Peter's question that we looked at last week, Matthew 18. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Essentially saying, like, Jesus, what's the limit? What's the ceiling of which I have to forgive someone? To which Jesus replies, Peter, your question is wrong because your starting point is wrong. The place to begin is not how much do I have to forgive others, but you need to start with the question, how much has God forgiven me? That's where you begin. Exact same thing here. Pharisees question, Jesus says to them, your question is wrong because your starting point is also wrong. The question is not how much do I have to endure before I'm allowed to divorce my wife. The question you need to start with was what was God's original intent for marriage from the beginning? That's where you need to start. D.A. Carson summarizes all this well, noting the followers of Shammai and Hillel were all losing sight of this central truth. Marriage is not to be understood as this casual union subject to the whims and desires of a lordly husband. This one flesh union God speaks of is a close and binding union, the closest of unions known on this earth. A union that God himself brings about in marriage. As Jesus says, they're no longer two, but one flesh. And that man, therefore, has no place in separating. F.D. Bruner puts it this way, one fleshness is so profound a reality that with it, Jesus has already answered the question of divorce without even having to directly address it. Which should have ended the conversation, right? He's given, like, this is clearly prior evidence going on that should usurp whatever's going on. And yet unsatisfied with Jesus having avoided their trap, Pharisees are like, yeah, follow-up question? Just one more thing. Conceding, perhaps, okay, Jesus, maybe it is as you say, and you're right. That is, in fact, God's intent for marriage from the beginning. But if that is the case, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're, they're referring to this passage from Deuteronomy 24, where the much-disputed words, find some indecency in her, had created these various camps on the subject of divorce. And yes, there, Moses had made a provision for the wife in the case of divorce, that she be given a certificate of divorce before being sent away. So, fair enough. Like, like oops, <laughs> that's, that's a good point, right? But as you see in verse 8 and 9, look here. It is an easily addressed point. As Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery essentially reminding them, as well as everyone else there present listening, of three important things. First of all, a certificate of divorce was not the command of Moses at all. Right? It was a concession, something he made an allowance for. Why? Well, because due to the hardness of their hearts, the men of Israel were already abandoning God's original intent for marriage and divorcing their wives anyways. 
So the certificate of divorce wasn't a command. It was a provision in the law made necessary because of the hardness of their hearts. Secondly, we know it was as a result of the hardness of their hearts Moses needed to put, the, put this kind of provision in place because the entire reason for this certificate of divorce was to give legal protection to a woman who was being divorced by her husband so that in the event that she wanted to remarry, which in this patriarchal society most women had to do just to survive, she, that she could go ahead and do this without her previous husband trying to lay any claim on her, financial or otherwise, should he want to come back and try to say, actually, no, you're my wife, you need to give me this or whatever. It was a way of protecting her from that situation ever happening. That's all it was. It was solely for the protection of the woman, not, not some weapon that a husband could wield to just discard his wife for any and every reason. Lastly, although it sounds as if Jesus was kind of leaning towards or siding with the school of Shammai, that when he lists there in verse 9, sexual immorality is the sole condition upon which divorce is permitted, the fact is, Jesus lists sexual immorality as the one condition upon which divorce is permitted. Paul later adds desertion by an unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians 7. Not because adultery is some sort of threshold, like if you cross this, then it's okay, that's, that's big enough for you to divorce, but only because Jesus is basing his opinion on God's original design for marriage. That's his starting point. For if the joining of a man and a woman by God himself through this sexual act into this one flesh union, if that's God's original design for marriage, they're no longer two but one, then in joining themselves sexually with another person, they've now created a new one flesh union, thereby making the first one null and void. That's, what, that's what's happening, and he's basing that out of his understanding of God's design for marriage, this one fleshness. Now, it's important to note, contrary to Judaism, Jesus lists adultery as a condition upon which divorce is permitted, not required. In Judaism, it was required. But here he's saying it's, it's permitted on the basis of this. But man, there's more than enough beautiful stories of restoration, a reestablishing of a one flesh union between a marriage by couples who've experienced adultery by one or both spouses. My point is just to say Jesus isn't standing with either one of the popular opinions of the day of the subject uh, of divorce and remarriage. His, his view was rooted entirely in God's original design for marriage. That's his starting point. And man, there's so many things I feel like we could draw out from what Jesus says here this morning by way of application. But as it relates to Jesus' response to the Pharisees, question in particular, I think one of the most important questions that you and I need to consider as it relates to our own views on the permanence of marriage is the same question Jesus poses to them. What's your starting point? As you're thinking about these questions uh, yourself, uh, marriage and divorce, what's your starting point? Are you starting with some sort of culturally defined metric, some personal uh, kind of list of non-negotiables which you feel like that when those are reached that that tips the scales uh, to the edge of divorce or are you starting with God's intent for marriage from the beginning what's your starting point when you think about these questions which hear me listen isn't for a moment to say that the dissolution of a marriage won't still be the result after answering that question it may be and I want to be incredibly careful and, and sensitive in how I say this, because on the one hand, I think we need to take God's original design for marriage, like the, the permanence of that one flesh union, the way he designed this, much more seriously than many do. I think 
just as they weren't doing it in Jesus' day, I think we need to take this much more seriously. Marriage today, it feels like it's become just this easily discardable, consumeristic kind of transactional relationship where you just discard a person when they're no longer meeting your needs. I think that's absolutely what we're seeing in our culture. And yet on the other hand, knowing that this passage right here exactly, as well as others like it, has been used to manipulate and intimidate men and especially women into staying in, in dangerous situations that they should not remain in. Situations where both a wife and children are being subjected to physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, that person needs to know it was never God's design for marriage or intention for that relationship that this, uh, this, the spouse or children would suffer abuse at the hands of the spouse. The whole point of a one flesh union is about creating safety in which a husband and wife can be naked and unashamed with one another. Naked as in like physically naked, but also relationally, emotionally, spiritually. When that safety is no longer existing and even your physical safety is threatened, separation, uh, physical distancing from that person as they hopefully seek help, as they seek repentance for what's happened. Much like uh, the ministries we support like Monarch Place for which we do the Hampers of Hope. That's, that's the, at least what you should be doing for yourself and your family. And divorce, at some point, even a, or even maybe a sense of calling to singleness from that point on, that may be indeed the necessary result as a result of pursuing this. But my point here is just simply to say that we need to start at the same starting point as Jesus. That's where we should at least start when we're seeking to answer these questions or, or seeking to grow in our understanding of marriage and divorce as followers of Jesus. What was God's original intent for this relationship from the beginning? Okay, that's, that's God's original intent in marriage. The second thing I want to look at together with you is God's equally good intent for singleness. God's equally good intent for singleness. And before I dive into this, I want to just begin by giving a shout out, just expressing my gratitude and thanks to some of the singles in our congregation, my wider community, who I reached out to this past week with an email. I'm just asking you to speak to your own present experience of singleness, as obviously, and being married now, uh, I no longer share either the benefits or the battles that you experience as single. So thank you. I, I hope I can synthesize something of what you shared with what Jesus says here in this last part of our passage, verses 10 and 12. Look, look with me there. So here we see Jesus' disciples. They are as rocked by Jesus' reframing of the question of marriage and divorce as the Pharisees were. Uh, which makes sense considering they're immersed in the exact same uh, cultural practices and attitudes towards marriage as the Pharisees were. And so as you see in verse 10 there, in response to Jesus' statement that separating what God joined together was, was never God's original intent in marriage, verse 10, they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Which sounds like hyperbole, right? It sounds like an overreaction or at least a cynical reaction to Jesus' Uh, to, to what Jesus says, and yet to everyone's surprise, rather than doubling back and being like, okay, well, I'm not saying that. Obviously, marriage is God's ideal. That's the pinnacle of human existence. Instead, in verse 11 and 12, Jesus doubles down. He says, actually, yes, that's right. For the one to whom this gift is given, it is better not to marry. Okay. Uh, and I know I mentioned this already. Jesus is challenging all kinds of cultural norms in this passage. We've seen that absolutely in his 
statements regarding marriage and divorce, but what I need you to see is he's also challenging cultural norms as it relates to singleness. Look here, he's placing singleness alongside marriage as God's equal, equally good intent for humanity. He's saying there isn't one that's better than the other, actually. A view, especially in first century Jewish society, that would have been seen as highly irregular. Because getting, like, getting married, having children, setting up like, like financial stability, the society, all these things, that was seen as the norm. And singleness, either as God's judgment or as a result of some kind of deficiency on that person's part of view, uh, as many singles have told me, which is still very much culturally present today. I actually heard this from almost every single I asked to speak to this point, especially in the church, although not exclusive to it. It's like marriage is set up as this ideal that everyone should ascribe to. Everyone should try to be aspire to that. And as though there's something wrong with them, if either they don't seek marriage or are able to find some sort of suitable spouse. Something, something must be wrong with you. Why, why wouldn't you seek that? Which means in speaking of singleness as an equally valid calling to marriage, Jesus' words here were absolutely counter to cultural attitudes about what it means to be fully human, both in his day as well as today. He's challenging everyone's cultural norms. And actually, you see the Apostle Paul affirming very much the same thing. 1 Corinthians 7, stating as a single, possibly divorced person himself, Paul says, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it, it's good for them to remain single as I am. Going on to add, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. But now, returning to our passage, verse 12 in particular, you see Jesus presents this gift, this, this equally valid calling to singleness, using the language and, and this kind of culturally understood metaphor in his day of someone who is a eunuch. That is, someone who either through some kind of birth defect or having been physically castrated, having their genitals removed, uh, either maybe to serve in a king's harem or something like this, is unable to be married or as you see later on in verse 12, adding that someone who has made themselves a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, which no, is not in any way kind of recommending or describing self-mutilation, but someone who, as the NIV translated, ha has renounced marriage or has intentionally embraced a call to singleness. A call, as you see at the end of verse 12 there, Jesus plainly recommends that the one who is able to receive such a calling should receive it. D.A. Carson, again, summarizes Jesus' words, verse 11 and 12, this way. He says, Jesus, like Paul after him, is prepared to commend celibacy because of the kingdom, not for the sake of attaining it, but because of its claims and interests. Thus, far from backing down at the disciples' surliness, Jesus freely concedes that for those to whom it is given, it is better not to marry. And the one who can accept this should accept it. Better how? How is it better? Well, as Paul goes on to say later in 1 Corinthians 7, as one example, he says, I want you to be free of anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And he goes on to say the same thing about unmarried women. So, so better, at the very least, in this way, is it frees someone from the, anxiety, the anxieties of divided interests. First thing to say here as it relates to Jesus' teaching on 
eunuchs in this teaching on singleness. I realize that's probably not uh, part of a lot of our dinner conversation that comes up a lot. We, like, that's not something culturally that we deal with uh, today. Jesus is not saying that people who are unable to have children or have some physical or medical limitation that prevents them from being sexually intimate with a spouse are automatically called to singleness, that they can't pursue marriage, not, not at all. Again, he's simply using a culturally understood metaphor of his day to make the point, singleness, equally good and valid calling as marriage is. But having said that, I know from many singles who do desire to be married and, and who experience all this same cultural pressure to find someone special and settle down. Singleness hardly seems like an equally good and valid gift. Anything like a gift at all from their perspective and something, again, that the church has historically done a very poor job of presenting as such. We don't do this well. So what's the answer for them? If you're a single person, how do you live out your life faithfully as a follower of Jesus when you're struggling with your singleness? You're longing to be married. What about you? I think uh, something Tim Keller said is a good maybe starting place here. If this is kind of your present struggle where he says he knows people that are, are, are very much so. Actually, I know people this way as well for whom singleness is a permanent calling. Those, he says, have the power of the kingdom working in their lives in such a way that they don't want to be married and who are neither depressed by loneliness or burning with sexual passion. Those people absolutely exist. I know those people. That's a real thing. But he then goes on to describe those who do desire to be married, that is, those who don't have this sense of gifting or calling to singleness, as being those who simply may just have a temporary calling on their life, which they must presently embrace. This is God's calling on my life right now. And, and I think I get what he means by that. And yet, what I heard other singles I asked also agree is that it's also kind of tricky language, maybe even dangerous language, to refer to their present state of singleness as, this is just my temporary calling. As the reality is, there's no guarantee whatsoever that just because someone has a desire to be married, that marriage is also their calling. It very well may not be. Right? That, that, that's, that's absolutely the case. The reality is, as one friend connected beautifully this teaching from Hebrews 11, it may be this, which speaks of those heroes of the faith listed there as those who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having only received them from afar. That actually may be the case. But the point is, if you are a single person here this, this morning, I think regardless of whether or not your calling to singleness is temporary or is a permanent one, I think what you do with that calling, how you choose to respond to it, either choosing to embrace it or rage against it, is going to make all the difference for how you experience it at the end of the day, whether you're grown by that calling or crushed underneath it. Which is just to say you can either fight and rage against that calling, seeing God as unjust and unfair, resenting people who have a different calling than you, or you can accept Jesus' calling on your life right now. Say, I don't know what my future is, but right in this moment, this is what God has called me to. And then seek to be grown and shaped in the way that God desires to grow and shape you right now in this season of your life. Even as you hold on to that very good desire to be married, that, that may be fulfilled one day. And I think as a church, particularly for those of us who are married, I think for our part, we need to do a far better job of valuing our singles showing them how valuable their contribution is to the kingdom. 
Living out God's promises, one friend reminded me of from Psalm 68 about how God settles the lonely in families. How could we live that out as a church? How could you and I invite the singles of this church into our family life? Pouring into their lives, checking in on them, welcoming them into our spaces, and then learning along the way from one another about the beautiful, profoundly valuable aspects each one of our unique callings brings to the kingdom. We began this morning looking at how over time God's people had come to lose sight of his original intent and his created order. And then as a result, built out these self-destructive systems along with misinterpreting what were only his provisions for the hardness of their hearts as commands. In light of Jesus' words here, his resetting, reestablishing cultural norm-defying words from our passage today, I'd like to just offer you a few encouragements as well as challenges that I see from this passage in closing. First one is both to married and to single people. And it's just simply this, to encourage you through prayer, through the study of God's word, absolutely in the context of community, to seek to understand and then embrace God's calling on your life. And I'm emphasizing that word, your, in particular, because I think for a lot of us, we're exactly like the Apostle Peter at the end of John's gospel. Jesus describes his specific calling on Peter's life, and he's like, right, right, that sounds good. But then looks over at John, and almost like he's at a restaurant, he's like, hmm. Yeah, what, what, what are you ordering for him? I'd just like to know if maybe like what you're ordering for him might be better than what you've set up for me. As, and then Jesus, you know, gently, but like kindly, but also firmly replies, what is that to you? Peter, you need to worry about fulfilling my call on your life, not comparing and contrasting what I've called someone else to. Just to say, don't, don't worry about what God has called anyone else to. Seek to understand what his specific call is on your life and then live out that call to the best of your ability as the Spirit enables you. And then assist other people, help support other people in what it is that he's called them to. That's a part of what it means to be community. We support each other in our individual callings. Secondly, for those of you who are married today, living in this culture, as I've said, that more than simply abandoning marriages with the same indifference that people were in Jesus' day seems to have abandoned God's good intent for marriage altogether, I think we need to strive to live counter to that culture and like intentionally, as God enables us, to hold out and live out the beautiful one flesh goodness of God's design in marriage whenever possible. Which again, as I said, that's not about muting accountability, that's not about remaining in dangerous, abusive marriages for the sake of the kingdom. But I do think it's like how we speak about marriage in general, just how we talk about it in general conversation. I think how you honor your spouse when talking about them with others, referring to someone as like your ball and chain or whatever, how we speak about our spouses with others, and even how we demonstrate faithfulness and steadfastness in the midst of those worse circumstances that so often go along with our vows to love one another for better or worse. I think we present a truly compelling picture of marriage that challenges cultural norms. People see us living out that counterculture, just not easily discarding things the moment they get hard. For singles, I believe you need to strive to live counterculturally as God enables you as well in, in your calling. 
which means using, one example is just to use the greater freedoms your singleness presently provides you with to invest more in the kingdom than those with divided interests can, as well as challenging the currently held norms that single life is about nothing more than hooking up and just living a responsibility-free life. I'll worry about all that adult stuff when I'm married. I can just do whatever I want right now. I think you've got an amazing opportunity to present a compelling picture of singleness as a calling that's truly as valid and meaningful as any calling to be married. Finally, I think as a church, we need to continually as well as intentionally push back against all of these stereotypes that continue to marginalize and delegitimize single people in our community as well as divorced people. I think, I think, I think we do okay at this as a church, and yet my encouragement is that we continue to strive to do even better as going forward, either in some of the ways that I've already mentioned, uh, new creative ways that you come up with yourself, but avoiding every opportunity to either call into question the equally beautiful and valid calling of God on someone's life to singleness, or to add condemnation to a divorced person's life when we have no idea most times of the circumstances that led to the dissolution of their marriage. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And as many have pointed out over the years, God himself identifies himself as a divorced person, Jeremiah 3. So if you don't associate yourself with divorced people, you are, as one commentator said, in the unenviable position of having nothing to do with God as well. Look, I know none of this is easy. It's not. It's not easy to do or accomplishable without the empowering of God's spirit. In fact, everything we've talked about this morning, this is the messy joy of community that we talk about in our, in our core values of knowing one another and being known. This is what it looks like. It's not just cut and dry, simple. Oh, you go in this box, you go in this box. It's messy, but it's still good. And yet I hope you also see it's based out of and rooted on the foundation of how God designed things, his good intent in creation, a created order that we ignore to our self-destruction and we align ourselves with both to experience God's good intentions for us and allowing us to truly be that place of belonging that demonstrates the welcome of God to others. God, help us to do this by your spirit and for your glory and for your church. Amen.